This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Well, you know, we've had a lot of laughs this week from shows like Our Miss Brooks, Burns and Allen, and Jack Benny. But as we close out the week, let's get serious. Tonight, two shows with very little laughter involved. Uh, zilch, as a matter of fact. We start off with a story written by Isaac Asimov for the X-1 show that was aired in 1956. X-1 employed writers like Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, and Robert Heinlein, to name just a few. So let's open our minds to let strange ideas flow and be accepted not only as possible, but likely. Here, then, is X-1 and the episode C-Shoot. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... Tonight's story, The Sea Shoot, by Isaac Asimov. We were on our way home to Earth when it happened. Six of us coming home as passengers aboard the merchant spaceship Starfire. At the start of the Second Interstellar War, one between Earth and the planet Chloro. And then it happened. Now hear this. Condition red. Condition red. We are under attack from a Chloran battlecruiser. All hands forward to battle stations. Passengers will remain confined to the after cabin. Condition red. We are being attacked. The interception by the Chloran cruiser, the murderous running jewel of energy blasts and force field defenses. We huddled in the passengers' after cabin, terrified, not knowing how the battle was going. We could hear the desperate bursts of steam through the steering tubes as the Starfire maneuvered to dodge the enemy attacks. And then... 
Now what? Uh, beginning of the end, you might call it. Well, what does it mean, Stuart? You were a space pilot? It means our generators have been drained of energy. We can't fight back. But, Monsieur, All right, don't we... worry. They won't destroy us. They need our ship too badly. They'll simply board us and take over. But what about the crew? The crew, Colonel? If they have any sense, they'll surrender. If they choose to fight, they'll... Now, they're coming aboard. Now, be very still. Oh, mother in heaven, help us. be still? If only those fools on deck will surrender without a struggle. They are fighting. Yes, it's the end. We've got to help him. All right, don't open that door. We just can't let them die. You can't help him. I'm going. Stop him. Stop him. Stop him. All right. Aristide. Shut the door quickly. Aristide, my brother. That poor fool. I'll get them. My brother, I swear to you, I'll get them. Yeah, you better cover his body. The brutes. The monstrous, green-skinned brutes. They're no more brutes than we are, Colonel. This is a war. Are you defending them? I'm merely pointing out the facts. I ought to strangle you. Why not save it for the chloros? I will. I promise you I will. They're probably deciding right now what to do with us. They might as well settle down and wait. We sat there, the five of us and listened while the Chloran invaders killed off the members of the Starfire's crew. Among us was Colonel Anthony Wyndham, an old Colonel Blimp type with a lame leg. Wyndham had spent his life in the militia back on Earth, but had never seen a battle. There was Demetrius Polyarchitis, who had just watched his brother being killed by a chlorocarbonizer. Polly was a huge man. He and his brother had tried truck farming in Arcturus and given it up after two seasons. Then there was LeBlanc, a sensitive, frightened young man of 22, and Randolph Mullen, who looked like somebody's caricature of a bookkeeper, a mild, balding, milk-toast little man. And there was myself, John Stewart. I was the only one who'd ever had contact with the chloro people. I had a pair of artoplasm hands to prove it. It's quiet now. Yeah, they finished with the crew. Mr. Stewart? Yes, Mr. Mullen. What do you think will happen next? Well, they'll put a prize crew of two aboard and take us to one of their home planets as prisoners of war. Only two of the Chloros will stay aboard? Well, two is all they'll need. <laughs> Why, Colonel? You're thinking of leading a gallant raid to retake the ship? Well, simply a point of information, dash it. All right, then let me give you another point of information. If you want to commit suicide quick, just open that bulkhead door. Three steps inside, you'd fall on your face. But why? Don't you smell anything, LeBlanc? Get close to the door. It smells like gas. Yeah, it is gas. Chlorine gas. They breathe it like we breathe oxygen. They've chlorinated the whole cruise compartment. One big whiff of that and we'd all be dead. We just forget about rushing the chloros. How do you know so much about their habits, Stuart? I lived on a chloro planet for six months. You see these hands? They were mangled in the oxygenating machinery of my own quarters. They grew these artoplasm things and operated. They're weak, but at least I have hands again. Monsieur Stewart? Yeah. Will they, will they kill us? No. Why do you say that? Because in their own way, they're gentlemen. Probably will be interned for the duration. You call them gentlemen? After they kill my brother in cold blood, you call them gentlemen? You know, Stuart... You sound more and more like a blasted greenie sympathizer. 
Nasty man. Where's your patriotism and loyalty? My loyalty is where it belongs, with honesty and decency, regardless of the shape of the being it appears in. This is a ridiculous war. Why are we fighting these people? We can live only on planets with oxygen, and oxygen is poison to them. They can live only in chlorine atmosphere, which is deadly to us. Yet we're fighting them over a bunch of worthless asteroids that neither of us can live on comfortably. Well, it's, it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of stupid pride and greed. I don't like what you say, mister. Why not? Because you talk too nice about these greeny scum. They're good to you, eh? Well, they weren't good to my brother. They killed him. And I think maybe I'll kill you, you rotten oh, greeny... Holy... Mullen, grab him. I, I can't break his hold. They are coming in. Holy, let him go. They saved your life this time. But then I'm finished with them. What? what? I think they're opening the lock. Don't get between us. Holy, don't lose your head. They'll kill us all. I greet you, Earthmen. The chloro was not a pleasant sight to anyone unused to it. He was about the height of an Earthman, but the top of him was just a green stalk with eyes. He was still wearing a spacesuit to protect him from the oxygen in our compartment. In one of his tendrils, he carried a chloran gun. As he stood in the doorway, I could see Polyarchitis' eyes begin to glisten with rage. Then, with a bellow like a huge bull, he threw himself at the chloro. He is not dead. Merely temporarily paralyzed. You five will remain together as prisoners of war. We expect to reach our own planet within several weeks, your time. There you will be interned for the duration of the war. If any of you attempts to leave this compartment, we shall be forced to destroy you. That is all I have to communicate. Hadn't we better do something for Mr. Polly or Kitty? Oh, he'll be all right. Just hoist him up in the car. Yes. My Polly, can you hear me, you stupid brute? His voice is coming back. Now, I know what's going on in that thick skull of yours, Polly. You think that when the paralysis wears off, you'll ease your feelings by slamming me around some more. Well, if you do, it'll be curtains for all of us. How do you mean, sir? None of you know the chloros the way I do. Unlike us, they assume automatically that any group of Earthmen they find together comprises a biological grouping, like an ant colony. The result is that they consider the group as something, well, something holy. Now, they'd never break us up. And if one of us did any harm to another, they'd have us all executed as a bunch of chlorotype perverts, a non-functioning group. So call all the names you want. But keep your hands to yourself, or we're finished. My little speech had a sobering effect on the group. For the next 24 hours, we did little besides eat our rations and think. I tried to evaluate them. The colonel I had figured for an old windbag. Polyarchitis was a hate-filled brute. LeBlanc would crack first. It was like a frightened child. Mullen? Mullen was a non-entity, a mouse instead of a man. 
Everything he did seemed prissyish. His voice had the quality of furtively rustling underbrush. How long did you say the trip would take, Mr. Steele? Well, the Cloro said about two weeks. Gentlemen, uh, if I may interrupt. Colonel? Well, it has occurred to me that perhaps you know of some some weakness that might enable us to overcome these Cloros. The only weakness they've got is that they can't stand oxygen. Oh, but there must be some way to get the best of the man. After all, there are only two. Before I answer, Colonel, I have to know your motive. Is it to save your own skin or help Earth win the war? Oh, dash it, man, to help our side, of course. What we're looking for is a way to save the ship for Earth without losing our lives, yes? All right, let's take a vote, then. LeBlanc? I I have a wife waiting on Earth, Mr. Stewart. I do not want to die. Uh Uh-huh. Hero number one. What about you, Mullen? I don't see how we could accomplish it without... Uh Hero number two. Well, Paul Yerkides... When I kill Chloros, it will be with my bare hands. On their planet, I will kill dozens, I promise you. Uh-huh, three down. Well, Colonel, don't you want to march to glory, an old militiaman like you? Your attitude is very cynical and unbecoming, Stuart. I see. Well, then I'll have to blow the ship up myself. Stuart! Don't worry, Colonel. I don't intend to be a dead hero. Of course, there is a way we might do it. What did you say, Mr. Mullen? There's a spacesuit and magnetic boots stored in that locker over there. We might be able to reach the control room from the outside of the ship. The outside? But how would we get outside? This compartment has a sea chute. It must. What is a a, a sea chute? A sea chute, my boy, is a casualty chute. It doesn't get talked about much, but all the main compartments have them. They're just little airlocks down which you slide a corpse. Burial in space. Oh, blasted Mullen. Uh, suppose you did get outside. How could you re-enter the ship? Uh, through the steam tubes, the ones they use to guide the ship. Wait a minute, Mullen. What do you know about steam tubes? I thought you were a bookkeeper. Well, on Arcturus, I got interested in spaceship models. I I studied all about them. On my own time, of course. Yeah, yeah, naturally. At, at any rate, I learned that the steam tubes have an access vent directly to the control room for repairs and, and so forth. And the chloros, they are in the control room. Uh, what do you think, Stuart? Well, it's a video sort of idea, but it might just work. We could get permission from the chloros to open the sea chute and bury Foley's brother. And one of us could slip into it, work forward, and climb up through the steam tube. The question being, which one? What about you? You with your loud talk and your sneers. I'm no hero, Paulie. I've already said that. My object is to stay alive. The steam tube let go while you were in it, you'd be broiled like a lobster. Well, how about the colonel here? If I were younger, blasted, I'd trounce you. You know very well with my injured leg. Yeah, of course. Not to mention my artificial hands. Well, now, what unfortunate deformities do the rest of us have? Paulie? You just keep talking, Mr. Big Mouth, and pretty soon we'll kick your teeth in. Of course, that's your standard reply to everything, isn't it? The blank, will you do it? I I cannot. Not even to get back to Denise? Please, I, I cannot. The blank needn't go. I'll do it. What? After all, it is my idea. Wait a minute, are you serious, Mullen? Yes. Well, how? I don't understand. Why? Why you? Well, it... It seems no one else will do it. But that's no reason, man. I can't think of any other. Uh, look here. You really intend to go through with it, sir? Yes, I suppose I do. Well, dash it, man. Let me shake your hand. You, you're, 
You're an earthman, by heaven. You do this thing and win or die. I'll bear witness for you. It was quite a moment. Mullen the mouse had suddenly turned into a man. He just stood there awkwardly while the colonel pupped his hand. Polyarchita seemed stunned. The blank was wide-eyed. And I? Well, I was in a peculiar position, one in which I rarely found myself. I had absolutely nothing to say. That ought to bring them. I hear one. What is it, Earthman? One member of our unit is dead, as you know. We request permission to jettison his body out of the casualty chute. You may do so. You'll have to open the chute lock from the control room. I will do so. Is there anything else? No. Nothing else. Thank you. Oh, boy. All right, come on now. We'll have to work fast. Mulling, get into a space suit from the emergency locker. Polly, help Mom with those magnetic boots. I'm working as fast as I can. The arm. All right, give me the helmet. The helmet. Okay. Now, Mullen, you better scratch your nose if you have to. It's your last chance for a while. What about radio contact? You can talk to us. We'll listen in on the helmet set in one of the other suits. The chloros won't have their set on the interphone frequency. Wait a moment. What for? Dash it, what's he going to use for a weapon? He isn't big enough to fight them barehanded. Oh, no, that's true. Well, how about one of those oxygen cylinders? Good idea. Use it to bash them over the head. Now, give him one of the cylinders equipped with a reducing valve. Now, look, Mullen, if your magnetic boots fail and you start drifting away into space, open this valve. You see that? Now, you can use it like a miniature jet and try to blow yourself back to the ship. Understand? Uh, I think so. Well, I really hope it works. All right, here goes the helmet. You'd better hurry. The light is on over the sea chute. Yeah. All right. That means they've opened the lock. Here. <laughs> now, can you hear me? Oh, oh. LeBlanc, give me that other space helmet. Yes. Here. Let me switch on the radio. Can you hear me, Mullen? I hear you. Fine. Plenty of air? Air's okay. Uh-huh. Polly, open the sea chute. Okay, now help him in. Are ready? Ready. Well, good luck. Close the chute. Fully ejected valve. Now. He's out. Oh, God help him. The light is out. Yeah. The Toros have closed the chute lock. I, I don't suppose he has much of a chance. No. Do you think, uh, you think he knew it? I don't know. I just don't know. Should I, I, I try to contact him on the radio? Yes, I think. Wait a minute. What is it? Listen, Toro's coming. Good Lord. He's sure to miss Mullen. Yeah, wait. Polly, get your brother's body on the cot. Put a blanket over it. Pretend it's Mullen asleep. Polly, for heaven's sake. My brother. Right, you've got to do it, man. It's our only chance. Listen, if Mullen could go out there and Very risk well. His... I will do it. Yes. You have jettisoned the body? Yes. Good. Is there something further we can do? No, I... We are very tired. Our grief is very great at losing one of our unit. 
We would like to rest alone. I will respect your wishes. I see that one of your units sleeps already. Yes, yes, Mr. Mullen was overcome with grief. I leave you. Holy, I thought sure you were going to rush him. With that brave little guy out there, what do you think I am anyway? And to think I laughed at him makes me ashamed. Yeah, I guess... I guess I've been saying some things that maybe weren't too funny. I owe all of you an apology. <clears throat> you think it's safe to try the radio? Yeah, we better. Hello? Hello, Mullen. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Where are you? I'm standing on the outside of the ship. All right, now take care. One misstep and you'll be marooned in space. Now, can you find the steam tubes? I think I've found one of them already. I can feel the rim. I just hope it doesn't let go when I get inside. Be careful. I'm going into the tube now. I can feel the ladder rungs I used to repair the inside. Keep in contact. Good Lord. They've let go with a blast. Well, it may be the starboard tubes. Mullen, Mullen. Still here. (sighs) They used the other tubes, fortunately. Now, if they don't try to correct for over-deflection... Yeah, keep moving. I seem to be... Wait. Yes, yeah, I'm at the end of the tube now, where it opens into the control room. Good, good. Now, look, there's a small metal door there. Can you feel it? Yes, I... I'm afraid it's locked from the other side. Oh. I can't budge it. Mullen. Mullen, listen to me. Stuart, I'm scared. I'm terribly scared. Yeah, all right, all right. Now, hang on. Don't blow up. Listen to me. Are you listening? Yes. Take the spare oxygen tank. Bang on the metal door that leads to the control room. The chloros are bound to hear you. When one of them comes to investigate, try to hit him with a cylinder. Now, aim for the stalk on top of his body. Try to blind him. Can you do that? Uh, I'll try. Well, now go on. Only one can come. The other will stay at the controls. Now start banging. Any luck? No, I... Wait, I, I hear something. Something's opening the lock. The door now. I hear... Ah! Mullen. Mullen, what happened? Mullen, can you hear me? Mullen! 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 It's no use. I must have gotten him. He was one brave little guy, that one. But suppose they have just got him in the control room. I mean... Maybe he's not dead. Well, well, then maybe one of us could rush them. We could bang on the door and jump the chloro. Well, the first guy would be a cinch to die. I, I would be willing to take the chance. You? Why not? I could try. Not you. I'm the strongest. I do it. Now listen, listen, you chaps. I'm an old man. I've got nothing to live for anyway. Suppose I throw myself at the ray gun. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Twenty minutes ago, there wasn't one of you who'd risk his little finger to get us out of here. Now you're falling all over each other. Maybe Mr. Mullen teaches us a lesson, huh? Yeah. Okay, Polly, give me the wrench. I'll start banging on the door. 
They say that selflessness is contagious. I guess maybe it is. I'd been a cynic all my life, a man who believed in nothing. Well, I'd come face to face with four human beings who proved that I'd been living a lie. I knew what I was going to do now. When the chloro came to investigate our compartment, I had it all planned. If only my poor, weak hands would hold out long enough. Ready? Ready. Ready. Here goes. That should bring him. Try again. Wait, wait, listen. Shh. It's at the door. Yes, ready. It's opening the lock. The poor old Mullen now. Uh, steady. No! Let him have it! Wait! Let him have it! It's not the floor! Wait! Good Lord! It's Mullen! Here, get, get the helmet off! That's it! All right, now lift! Mullen! Mullen, are you all right? I seem to be quite all right. Well, the chloros. Both dead. At least I hope so. Well, what happened? Well, I banged on the steam tube hatch and the chloro opened. Yeah? I hit him with a cylinder. It blinded him, I, I guess, but didn't kill him. He grabbed me and pulled me into the cabin. In the struggle, he broke my transmitter. That, that's why I couldn't talk to you. Finally, I managed to, to club him down. Well, what about the other one? The other one almost got me. It must have heard the scuffle and came into the cabin with a ray gun. What I did, I, I guess, was pure reflex. The cabin atmosphere was chlorine, of course, and the green didn't have a spacesuit on. So I just turned on the oxygen valve in that spare tube. It was like spraying an insect with poison. Well, you're a brave man, Mullen. I'd have been scared to death. I... Mullen, what is it? An hour later, false hands and all, I was at the controls of the ship, headed for Earth. We'd gotten rid of the chlorinating equipment and restored the oxygen naturally. Mullen was asleep in the cabin under a sedative, or so I thought until the cabin door opened. Mullen, for Pete's sake, get back to bed. No, I'm quite all right now, really. Do you mind if I watch how you operate the ship? Oh, no, not at all. Sit down. Well, I guess, uh, I owe you an apology. I didn't think too much of you. That's your privilege. <laughs> no, it isn't anybody's privilege, Mullen, to despise another. For years now, I've abandoned hope of finding any decency in human beings. I owe you a vote of thanks. You embarrass me, Mr. Stewart. I, I didn't do it for any heroic reasons, I assure you. Far from it. But why did you do it, Mark? That puzzles me very much. Well, Mr. Stewart, I'm a bookkeeper. Seventeen years ago, I left Earth to work on Arcturus. I never made much impression on anybody on Earth, although I wanted very much to have people like me. Well, about a year ago, I started to write to my family again. Don't ask me why. And then I asked for a leave of absence to go home after 17 years. Well, I still don't understand. It wasn't patriotism or love of a woman or money or any of those things. What was it? Mr. Stewart, 
Haven't you ever been homesick? You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features A Gun for Dinosaur by L. Sprague de Camp, a story of hunters in the bloodiest and most ferocious arena of all prehistoric Earth, where hunting reptile heavyweight is no job for human lightweights. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you The Sea Shoot, a story from the pages of Galaxy, written by Isaac Asimov, and adapted for radio by George Leppard. Featured in the cast were Lyle Sudrow, Stan Early, Bob Hastings, Mercer McLeod, Danny Ocko, and John Gibson. Your announcer, Bill McCoy. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. Next week, on a distant planet in a forgotten colony of Earth, a man is ordered to commit a murder. Listen to Skulking Permit on X-1 next week. Stay tuned for Suspense Theater next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. More chills on the way as we check into the episode of Suspense Theater entitled My Own Murderer, starring Herbert Marshall. Suspense is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wine. As Roma Wines bring you a remarkable tale of suspense. And with the drama called My Own Murderer, and with the performance of Mr. Herbert Marshall, Roma Wines hope indeed to keep you in suspense. I was never really much attracted by Alan Rennick, even before he murdered Baines. It had been a raw March day, and I returned home to about half past eleven in the evening to find Alan Rennick waiting on my doorstep. Hello, Dick. Alan, what on earth are you doing here? It's a long story, old boy. Aren't you going to ask me, you know, is it your habit to keep people waiting on your threshold? Well, give me a chance. After you. I say, this is cozy. Just about right for a bachelor who never entertained. I just say it wouldn't do for you at all. I wouldn't be too sure of that. Just one bedroom? There's a spare, but I've never used it. But very hospitable, are you all trapped? I never had any occasion to be. Well, you have now. What's in your mind, Alan? I'm coming to that. You remember Baines, my butler and valet? Mm, vaguely. Well, Baines turned out a bad penny. Tried to blackmail me, as a matter of fact. Blackmail? Yes, he got hold of some letters written to me by a lady. A married lady. You guessed it. Since you're my legal advisor, you may as well know the whole story. They were from Anita Kilner. Ah, so you bolted, warned her, and put the police on him. The police? Oh, no, I couldn't afford to do that. 
One couldn't very well produce Anita's letters. Then you paid Baines the blackmail he wanted, huh? Certainly not. Then what? I'm afraid I lost my temper. Good Lord, you don't say there was violence. Of course there was. You don't think I could let a reptile like that go on living? Let me get this straight. Are you trying to tell me that you... I beat his brains out. The poker. You... You murdered him? I suppose that's what the police would call it. Happened this afternoon. Uh, well, three o'clock, I think. Well, I don't know sooner. Probably too late now to fix up an alibi for you. You'll think up something, won't you, Dick? You always do when I'm in a jack. And in the meantime, I can hide out here, can't I? What possible good will that do? They'll track you down here sooner or later, and then we'll both be in the soup. No, Alan, no, you better give yourself up. Then I'll see what can be done about getting you off. Perhaps we could muster you up a bit and plead self-defense. Well, is that the best your devious legal mind can dream up? At the moment, yes. I'm a little tired. Well, I'm not going to cooperate. I'm going to stay right here till you figure out a way to get me clear of this. Alan, be reasonable. For your own good, give yourself up. Is it my own good you're thinking of? Or is it because you're afraid you'll be caught harboring a criminal and lose your filthy law practice? That settles it. What are you doing? Telephoning the police. Put that phone down. It's best this way, believe me, Alan. I've already committed one murder this evening. I've nothing to lose by committing another. I, uh, uh, sorry, wrong number. <laughs> You're really afraid of me, aren't you? Now, perhaps. Tomorrow I could turn you in with no risk whatsoever. But I don't think I will. There's a good fellow. I'll let you stay here, Alan. I'll save your neck for you, too. Why this sudden change of heart? You've always thought me rather a worm, haven't you, Alan? Oh, I say, Dick, old boy. You were the dashing man about town with your escapades and your lordly extravagances and your women running after you. I was just a dull fellow trapped in a musty law office. Now your very life depends on me. I suppose that's why the situation appeals to me. It's an adventure, if you like. Well, I don't. I just say not. It won't be pleasant for you cooped up in this little flat with no one but me to talk to. Well, after all, it's only temporary. You may not like some aspect of it, even for a little while. You'll have to do your own laundry, of course. I say. Checking laundries is a favorite police trick. And no lights must be turned on in the flat when I'm not at home. You mean I've got to sit here in the dark? You can go into the kitchen or the bathroom. There are no outside windows in those rooms. Oh, and talking of the kitchen, I think you ought to have your meals there. Even when I'm in. You'll serve me in the dining room. Look here, do you think I'm your servant or what? As a matter of fact, it's only fair you should be. Since I can't hire any help so long as you're here. Well, wouldn't it be simpler and more meaty if we both dined in the kitchen? I'm not used to dining in the kitchen. Neither am I. And the sooner you practice, the better. The future's not going to be so simple for you as the past has been, Alan. But after all, you're very lucky to have a future at all. Eh? <laughs> Well, Dick, whatever it is, one thing is certain. I'll have you to thank for it. And I warn you, Dick. If I do hang, it won't be only for Bane's murder, but for yours as well. Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you as star Mr. Herbert Marshall, as Richard Sampson, with Norman Lloyd, as Alan Rainick in My Own Murderer by Richard Hull, which is Roma Wines' presentation tonight of 
Suspense. Now it is with pleasure that we welcome back to our Hollywood soundstage, Mr. Herbert Marshall, who, as Richard Sampson in My Own Murderer, continues a narrative well calculated to keep you in suspense. Alan Rennick proved to be my own murderer, as well as Baines's. This document will serve as his death warrant. If not, well, I should make good use of it anyhow. This, then, is what I decided to do. I was to keep Alan Rennick and hide him where he was, in my flat. I had a plan for effecting his escape. But it was more than a month before I had an opportunity to start it in motion. It came quite unexpectedly in the course of my almost daily visits to the old Bailey. An insurance case preceded mine on the court docket. And I was forced to wait while a revolting red-headed doctor rambled on with his testimony. That red hair of his really fascinated me. But not as much as his medical bag, which lay on the bench before me. But when he stepped down from the box, I was already on my way out of the courtroom. Hey, hey, stop, stop that man. He, he stole my bag. What's this? What's the trouble, Doctor? Who's that man? The one with the tortoiseshell glasses. He's made off with my kit. What did you say he took? A black leather bag. You know the type with my name on it. Well, I'm afraid he's lost in the crowd by this time, sir. But if your name's on it, could you identify him if you saw him again? Well, of course I could. He had on tortoiseshell glasses and he had a bad mastoid scar right under his right ear. All the time he was talking to the policeman, I was standing not more than five paces away, lost among the curious crowd that had collected about them. I left the room with the crowd and hailed a cab. When I'd taken what I needed from his bag, I threw it with its remaining contents into the ever-useful Regent's Canal. Its owner's name, stamped on the outer side of it, was as revolting as his red hair. Jeremiah Bloggins. Jeremiah Bloggins. Now my plan for Alan's escape swung into motion. Our chief accomplice was a woman friend of Alan's named Margaret Farley, whom I knew to be one of the most intelligent of his acquaintances. Hello, Dick. Where's Alan? It's all right, Alan. You can come out now. Well, it's high time. Hello, Margaret. Alan. Oh, Alan, my poor, poor darling. Long time, no see. But you're still the prettiest girl in London. Look, I'm sorry to interrupt this touching little scene, but there's not too much time. Shall we discuss our plan? Well, yes, of course. Well, in essence, this is it. Alan's going to die. What do you mean by that? I say, isn't that rather extreme? Not literally, of course. The point is to arrange a bogus death of some sort. To get you declared legally dead, and then you'll assume another identity. Well, that has possibilities, but what about the body? Well, I'm afraid I'm forced back on the old expedient of the suicide note. The clothes left on the riverbank and the body that's never recovered. Later on, you're declared legally dead. It's a very old plan. And rather unlikely to deceive the police for that reason. Don't you think, old boy? Oh, we'll admit later on, if necessary, that it was a put-up job. What's the good of that? Don't you see? If the police ask too many questions, Miss Farley here will admit being a party to a bogus suicide. But stick to her story that you really drowned that misadventure while trying to carry out your plan. I think it has possibilities, Alan. 
Where is this Hellespont that I'm supposed to swim? Well, I've been studying maps of the English coastline. We should choose the mouth of a river where the tidal currents are strong enough to, to sweep a body out to sea. Not too broad a channel, so it can be easily swum when the tide's at low ebb. And not too near a town or village, so there'll be no unwanted witnesses. So I grow a beard, swim the river, put on a different clothes, and become a... Jeremiah Bloggins or somebody for the rest of my life. What? Not that you happen to mention that name. Jeremiah Bloggins? Why not? (laughs) Good a name as any. Don't you think so, Margaret? I don't think this is quite the time for facetiousness, Alan. Well, all right. So I become Jeremiah Bloggins. That's better than Hank. But what will Jeremiah Bloggins do for money? Well, you could make out a will in favor of Margaret here, or... Oh, you... I, I suppose I can depend on you to make things stick legally. Well, I'm putting myself in a position where you could easily blackmail me if I didn't. He has a point there, Alan. Now, we'll need another confederate. Somebody to look after when you get to the other shore. He could leave a car there, of course, but the effect of the cold water... Well, I think it's safer to have somebody waiting for you. On the other side. Who will it be? That, uh... That actress friend of Alan, Anita Kilner. That woman? Oh, how can you suggest such a thing? Oh, come now, Margaret. It's true that Anita's a fool and rather a tiresome one. I, I don't know whether Dick told you, but her letters got me into this mess. Baines was trying to blackmail me for them, and that's why I killed him. Dick's right. I need someone, and I can trust Anita. Because of those letters, if for no other reason. Heavens, what a scheme. Everybody's in a position to blackmail everybody else. Yes, that had already occurred to me. That's exactly why this... Plan can't possibly fail. The river mouth we finally hit upon was near Mewdford. It was Margaret Farley's choice, and it was a good one. Still, I was afraid to trust everything to her. So I decided to drive Alan down there and leave as soon as I saw him safely in the water. Margaret Farley was to meet us there. Anita would be waiting on the other bank. It was at times a revolting journey down to Mutford that night. The trouble with you, Dick, is that you like managing people. Mark my words, one day I shall be a free man again. And then I shall try and repay you for some of the things you've made me put up with. Cleaning up after you, making me say, yes, Dick, certainly, Dick. Of course, Dick. I suppose it's quite useless to point out to you that what I did was not only for your own good, but absolutely necessary. Incidentally, I shouldn't be smoking quite so much if I were you. You've got to do some swimming tonight, remember, and you're hopelessly out of condition. How I should like to give you just one on the jaw. Just one? Seven is your usual number, isn't it? Isn't that what it took to kill Bane? You are not terrible swine. If you weren't driving the car, I'd give you something to remember me by. I shan't forget you easily as it is. Oh, well, forget what I say. Come on, Agents. The devil of a cold night, too. Did you bring that black coffee as I asked you to? Where's the thermos? There on the back seat. Help yourself. Oh, the Felix. Yeah. <laughs> Filthy coffee. I should have made it myself. Better save a little for just before you go into the water. Margaret's bound to have brought some, too. I'll just finish it off. No. Well, bad as it tastes, it's making me feel a lot better.
I thought you'd never come. Oh, Alan, you poor boy, we would pick the coldest night in the year. Oh, nonsense. I feel marvelous, marvelous. Well, I brought you some hot coffee. It's here in this thermos. Better save it for just before I dive in. Well, come along. Let's get going. Oh, I wish he wouldn't rush things, though. He'll wear himself out before he gets in the water. If I know Alan, he's whistling past the cemetery. If he doesn't lose his nerve at the last moment, if he does... You mustn't imply things like that about Alan. Besides, I don't know that I could bring myself actually to push it. You must. You know what he is, and tonight he's especially difficult. All right. I'll do whatever seems necessary. I don't know what's come over me. I feel positively numb. Really, it's... It's much too cold. Hadn't we better try it another night? Now, Alan... I... I... I can't, Margaret. I'm afraid it's, it's too cold. Here. Here's the thermos. Here. Drink this, darling. It'll warm you up. Yeah. Oh. Go on. Drink it up. There. Well, I, I, I feel terrible. I, I've never been so cold in my life. Now, go on, Alan. Be brave. You are always that. Now, look, darling. Really. No. No, don't. I... No, please. Oh, please. Yes? Mr. Sampson? Yes? It's Anita. Oh, yes? I'm calling from the inn near Milford. I waited all night, but Alan never showed up. Are you sure you waited to the right spot? Of course I did. Do you think he didn't get across? I don't see why not. It was even narrower than I expected. I could have swum it myself. Now, look. You better go on home and act as if you hadn't been away. And don't telephone me again. I'll let you know the moment I hear from him. Day followed day with no word from Alan. I had no alternative but to assume that he had drowned there in the estuary that night. The body had not been found, but then we had deliberately chosen a place where the tide could be alleged to have carried it out to sea. The uncertainty was a little distressing. I had not forgotten his threat to come back and even scores with me once he got free. And tonight came an unpleasant little scene to not help my frame of mind. It began with a neater. I know you're angry at me for coming in, Mr. Sampson. But I've simply got to talk to someone. Well, you ought not to come here. It isn't safe. Safe? <laughs> you're a nice one to talk about safety. Do you think Alan's safe now? I don't know. And I don't believe you care. Trusted you. You've let him down. Oh, why did he ever trust himself to a brute like you? You and your plans and your cleverness. Where are they all now? And you sit back contented with what you've done. <sighs> If I may interrupt your panegyric for a moment, Anita, I'd better answer that. You listen to me first. Oh, well, I shall see about that. Well, it seems to be a gathering of the clan. Oh, it's you, Mrs. Farley. I want to talk to you, too. So you missed him. He didn't come. I did my part. Did you do yours? I did my best. But I don't know. I, I ought never to have let him go, considering how cold and miserable he was. I ought to have stopped him. And why didn't you? Because you had a preconceived idea put into your head by this conniving brute of an attorney. He planned it all. And now he isn't going to turn a hand to find Alan and help him if he needs it. Because it might jeopardize his filthy little law practice. Well, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to the police and tell them the whole story. Has it occurred to you that the police cannot possibly help anyone in this case and may possibly harm all three of us? 
And if Alan is alive, you inevitably do him harm. Yes. He's right. I pushed him in. I... I pushed him in. Don't be morbid. <laughs> you did what you could with excellent intentions. Are you going to clear your conscience by getting two other people into trouble? Are you, Anita? Why? I confess I'm not too keen on helping Margaret to be a martyr for Alan. How dare you? It was you and your hysterical letters that got Alan into this mess. And wouldn't it be ironic if they ended up by being published anyway? That would be a fine tribute to Alan's sacrifice. Especially if he's dead and gone. What are you driving at? I have those letters. I'm not going to demand a price for them like Bain's. But at the same time... You dirty blackmail. I'm merely forcing you to do something for your own good. Just like giving a patient morphia to prevent him from doing an injury to himself. Morphia? A figure of speech, but I think you understand what I mean. Morphia. After the women had gone, I thought over the conversation. Particularly that part of it in which Margaret Farley repeated the word morphia. I think she knows. But even if Alan's body is recovered and they find what he really died of, they can never make an accusation. They have to prove possession of the morphia. And no one in the world can do that. I meant to call Anita Kilner and found her out. I find that I don't even know her married name. Not that it matters, considering what went on with Alan behind her husband's back. In any case, I can depend on her letters to keep her mouth shut. On reading this over, I find that in my marshalling of the facts in this case, I have omitted one possibility. Far-fetched, it's true. But there is one person whom I should set about finding if I were acting for the Crown in this case. I refer to that abominable, truculent, red-headed doctor with a ridiculous name. Yes, Mr. Thompson. I'm leaving the office for the day, Chatsworth. Will you uh, put these files in my briefcase? Yes, sir. And will you get out Rennick's file? Burr goes into probate tomorrow, and I want to study it at home tonight. Yes, sir. Oh, by the way, that gentleman is still waiting in the outer office. What gentleman? Oh, I must have forgotten to tell you. He came in with a lady just a moment ago. Dr. Bloggins. Bloggins? Jeremiah Bloggins. <laughs> Peculiar name, isn't it? I beg pardon, he's a friend of yours, sir. No. No, not especially. You say I was in? Yes, I'm afraid I did. Yeah. Chatworth, if you ever become a solicitor, be sure your office has two entrances. Shall I send him away, sir? Jeremiah Bloggins. Hmm. I dare say he'd be unpleasantly persistent. Would you let him come in? Yes, sir. Will you be needing me, Mr. Sampson? Yes. You better sit down. I want you to take down a statement. Yes. Will you come in, please? Thank you. Hello, Mr. Sampson. I want you to meet... Dr. Bloggins. Yes, we met before. Oh, oh, oh. Strange you should have been the one to bring this about, Anita. I always thought Margaret Farley the cleverer one. Or should I speak so frankly? Dr. Bloggins knows everything, Mr. Sampson. Yes, I know. But just for the record, are you ready to take down that statement, Chapman? Yes, Mr. Sampson. Very well. I murdered Alan Rennick. Uh, just a moment, uh, Mr. Please Sampson. don't interrupt. Yes, I murdered him. 
And why not? He was a killer. He forced himself on me and turned himself into my private property. He might indeed be called my own murderer. My motive? Well, perhaps one day the world will learn that the, st the strongest compulsion to murder is hatred. I hated Alan Rennick. I planned his murder brilliantly. I had counted on the sea holding Rennick long enough for the traces of mafia to have gone. I really cannot be responsible for the treachery of the elements. Only one man had the evidence to convict me, and the odds against his being found and brought face to face with me were so slight that I would risk it again. I'm not sorry that I killed him. Even now I'm able to say that it's been a great adventure. Requiring courage and daring beyond Rennick's wildest imagination. I have proved which of us was the better man. Do you have all that, Chatsworth? Yes, sir. Oh, uh, add this note at the bottom. In view of the customary bumbling and obtuseness of the Crown Prosecutor, it will be probably necessary to state that this case will be greatly facilitated by calling as his first witness... Dr. Jeremiah Bloggin. Uh, look here, sir. Perhaps I'm obtuse, but why on earth are you trying to involve me in your beastly murder? Huh? <laughs> Do you... Do you mean to say you don't recognize me? Why, no. Why should I? Anita, why did you bring this man here? I thought you knew. He's my husband. After Alan's body was found, I decided to tell him everything. He simply came here to get the letters. And you don't even remember me? When, when your bag was stolen while you were testifying at the old Bailey? Well, so, so you're the blighter who did that. Good heavens. That's where you got the mafia. Out of my bag. Yes, I suppose I could get you held as accessory after the fact. But that would only confuse the Crown Prosecutor. Oh, well, on the whole, I'm rather glad it worked out this way. After all, as Nanky Poo says in the Mercado, there's much to be said for the advantage of having it done by the public executioner. <laughs> And so closes My Own Murderer, in which Roma Wines have brought you a star, Herbert Marshall, with Norman Lloyd, in tonight's study in Suspense. Suspense is produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. This is Herbert Marshall. It's been a great pleasure, as always, to make an appearance on Suspense, a show which is but a very great favorite with all of us. Mr. Spear has just been telling me about next Thursday's broadcast, and it sounds like one of the very finest of the year. It's a very really wonderful story by W.F. Harvey, August Heat. And in it, as your star, will be Ronald Coleman. Now, if you'll permit a most important word. War news from the Pacific is encouraging. We're on our way to Tokyo. But until Japan is beaten to our knees, the war goes on. It takes dollars to buy the equipment our men need. Your dollars. And by investing those dollars in war bonds now during the seventh war loan drive, you help your country and help yourself to greater post-war purchasing power. Get extra bonds. Big ones. During the mighty seventh. Next Thursday, same time, Mr. Ronald Coleman.
will be your star of Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.